So Second Peter, um, starting at verse 1, and then we'll read through to 10a. So, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they, with feigned words, make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. So far. Let us pray. Holy God in heaven, we come before you as we now turn to your word again, a sober passage filled with much warning and yet at the same time, hope um, dotted throughout. I pray, Lord, that uh, your word would speak to us. I pray that you would give me wisdom to bring it faithfully. And most of all, that your name is glorified through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, uh, from this passage, uh, from verses 4 through 10a, I have four points that I'd like to bring out. Uh, They are, number one, God's judgment on angels. Number two, God's judgment on the old world. Number three, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And lastly, God's just judgment. So first of all, God's judgment on angels. If you remember last time we started in verse 1 of chapter 2, it was talking about the false teachers that would come and infiltrate the churches, and Peter is warning about them, and he's also, we saw then, realizing they were already then in the church. It was nothing new. And uh, he compares them to the uh, false prophets of the Old Testament. Um, We ended in verse 3 seeing that the judgment of God would come upon them. It would not sleep. It would not linger. And the false teachers were denying this judgment. And so he brings it up, and the false teacher said, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. And they said two things. They said, surely, if God was going to judge the world, it's going to consume everyone, the righteous, the unrighteous, everybody would be destroyed. And so he says, or they would then say, and because we know that couldn't be, therefore the whole idea of a final judgment is not the case because that wouldn't make any sense. So if God's going to judge it, it would be cataclysmic, the whole thing. That's not going to happen. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want. Don't worry about it. 
Now, if you notice in the text, chapter 4, or chapter 4, verse 4 here begins with the word for. It's an explanatory word, so he's deepening verse 3, where it talks about that lingering judgment, that God's judgment would not linger and that it would come. And um, notice as well that verse 4 opens up then also for if. Now, if you say if something, you want a then following it somewhere along the way, right? If I say if you come today, then this. Where's the then in this whole passage? You can look for it. You won't find it. So it's, we're left hanging a little bit. So where is the then? Well, it's implied in verse 9, where it finally talks about, for if God didn't spare all these people, then in verse 9b, it says that the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust. But it's implied. It's not actually stated. But every scholar and commentator picks that up, that it's Peter kind of leaves us looking for it, the, uh, the, the then part. <clears throat> First of all, we have to see that God did not spare the angels. So if he didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the old world, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then certainly he will not spare the unjust. That's the major premise of this section. So first of all, in the first point here, God's judgment on the angels. So who are these angels and what was their sin? Um, These are the angels from Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, the parallel book of Jude to Peter says that these angels from before the flood, also known as the sons of God, did not keep their first estate, their domain. They were supposed to stay up in the heavens. Instead, they came down, we see in Genesis 6, and had sexual relations with women, from which comes the giants, the Nephilim. Um, I'm not going to go into detail on this here, I did that at length when we were going through this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. So if you want to understand what I'm stating this morning more, I spent two sermons talking about this, so I'll leave you to look in the archives on Sermon Audio to look that up if you want more, or just come talk to me. That's fine, too. So I'm not going to go there now. But either way, I just stated who they were, and it says in the text that God didn't spare them, but he cast them down to hell. Now, most people think of hell as the final destination of the wicked. The Greek word used for hell is Gehenna, and um, otherwise it's called the lake of fire. That is not the word that's used here in the text. The word for hell here is peculiar, and it's peculiar to those particular sons of God, those particular angels. It is Tartarus. And so he thrusts them down into this region called Tartarus. Other word for Tartarus would be the abyss. This is the deepest region of the underworld, lower even than the commonplace, the common realm of the dead, known in the Hebrew as Sheol or in the Greek Hades. So those are the categories. So these angels, they transgressed their domain, came down, fornicated, and God cast them down into Tartarus, the lowest regions of Sheol. And then Peter describes their condition. He says here, as Jude talks about this as well, he says they were delivered into chains of darkness. So the very chains that shackled them aren't physical chains. Remember, they're spiritual beings. It is darkness itself that keeps them bound. And it's kind of ironic because often in the Bible, angels are called the shining ones. 
And here these shining ones are bound in darkness, away from God's glorious light that they were meant to reflect. You see, sin is a dark deed, and it always leads away from the light to darkness. And they are an emblem of what sin does. It leads us away from God's precious, precious light. Notice the judicial language here when it says God delivered them into these change. That is the idea of, as it also says, reserving for judgment. The idea there is judicial. It's a court case. God has declared them guilty of this transgression, and now they are bound, awaiting their final judgment. In the Greek, this word uh, delivered is in the perfect tense, and it, or sorry, the word reserved. It describes a fixed state. They can't get out of this. They can't undo the shackles of darkness, and they are just simply waiting in this horrid pit for final judgment. You ever thought of that? All the way back from the times of the flood till now, there they await in solitary darkness. And they're waiting for the same day that Peter is talking about that awaits everybody. But do not miss the main point of this section. Because it says, for if God spared them not. Why would he bring up these angels altogether? It's because God didn't show them mercy or pity. And you have to think of who these are. These are the holy angels. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the angels, which are greater than man, whose dignity is higher than man, If they, the greater beings, were not spared because of sin, then certainly sinful man, who is lower than the angels, will not escape. If any group should have gotten a lighter sentence, it should have been the angels, but God didn't spare them. You see, status is no exemption for justice. And we're actually thankful for that, because if we have magistrates that give someone uh, an easy Sentence because, well, they had more money or they had a higher status in society, we would say that is an injustice. And similarly with God, the status of the angel is no excuse for their transgression. You see, God's holiness is the great equalizer. And we're so prone to compare a cross. Oh, I'm not like them. Well, certainly they're going to get it worse than me. And we are indifferent to the God against whom we have sinned. You know, we we go this way because that's what we see and that's who we think we know. But oh, if we reflected more on God, knowing God, knowing his holiness, it would reflect so much more of a sober view of ourselves and what sin really does to us. It's really, if we go across, it's because we have probably a very low view of God himself and we're actually heaping sin upon sin and so Peter moves us from the angels to the others that surrounded these angels he talks here of the old world that brings us to the second point God's judgment on the old world and he spared not the old world and unlike Jude the sister epistle here Peter talks about this judgment you won't find this in Jude 
You do see Sodom and Gomorrah. You do see the angels. This is, again, the world before the flood. Same time as these angels. And the emphasis, again, falls on the word spared not. They were not spared. Same word. And whereas with the angels, it would have been the status that may have been the exemption card. Here, in the old world, the pre-flood world, what would have been the exemption card there or then that people might say, well, certainly, that's a little extreme. It would be the sheer number of people being judged. The whole world got destroyed, right? Man, woman, child, beasts, plants, everything got wiped from the map. And so the emphasis here would be the sheer number of what was destroyed. We know, of course, Noah did not get destroyed. We'll get to that later. But it talks about this bringing in the flood upon the ungodly. You know what's striking about the word flood in the Greek? And you'll just listen to this. The Greek word for flood is cataclysmus. Cataclysmic. That's the word we use for what the flood brought. It sounds familiar, right? The unimaginable destruction that came on account of the destruction of the old world. Second Mac- or sorry, Third Maccabees, one of the uh, historical books, uh, the intertestamental period. It's not in scripture. It's an apocryphal book. It says this, You destroyed men for their wicked deeds that they did in the past, among them giants relying on their own strength and self-confidence upon whom you brought an immeasurable flood of water. You see how they recognized that God destroyed the whole thing, including the offspring, the unholy offspring of the angels and of mankind. What's interesting about the cataclysmic flood is that both Jesus and Peter speak of the event of God's final judgment in relationship to how the flood came. And what is the word that they both speak of with respect to that? Not here, Peter, but in another passage. It's the idea of coming as a thief. Jesus speaks of it coming as a thief in the night. It's unexpected, right? People were eating and drinking, living life, marrying and giving in marriage, and it came suddenly. I was thinking about that this morning when I was just reviewing my notes here. You ever hear of somebody, or maybe you've had it yourself, that you were broken into your house, you were robbed Something was stolen. And Jesus picks up on this when he says, if you knew what time they would come, you would have been ready. But the whole point of a thief is you're not ready. You didn't expect it. And how we have a world that's not expecting it. But we should be expecting it any time. And I think we lose sight of that, the expectancy we should have of Jesus coming again. You know, people are talking right now about a nuclear war again. It's kind of being revived a bit because of the whole thing going on in Russia and Ukraine. And thankfully, that is in the realm of speculation. But God's final judgment is not in that realm. That is in the realm of reality. And Peter is emphatic that we think like that. So that brings us to the third point here. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Talks about bringing the cities of, or turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah clearly get the most ink in this section here. Uh, he says the most about it. Sodom and Gomorrah were the largest of five cities that were destroyed in the valley of Sidim. And just like the word flood is cataclysmic, we also borrow from the Sodom and Gomorrah event a word that's very common in our English. In fact, it's interesting, the word to overthrow in the Greek is katastrophe. 
catastrophic. So two events, cataclysmic and catastrophic, are both borrowed from these huge events in redemptive history and in God's judgment. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah that when Lot chose to go there in Genesis 13, it says that it was as the garden of the Lord, that is, the garden of Eden. It was so beautiful. It was lush. It was very full of life. But at God's command, the fruitful becomes fruitless. The well-watered turns into a desert because it was, as we know, consumed by fire and brimstone. And interestingly, everybody alive in Peter's day knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. They knew about what happened. Josephus, writing in around 70 AD, around the destruction of Jerusalem, he says this. He says, quote, In fact, vestiges or remnants of the divine fire and faint traces of the five cities are still visible. Still, too, may one see the ashes reproduced in the fruits, which from their outward appearance, would look to be edible. But on being plucked up with the hand, they dissolve into smoke and ashes. The evidence is still in the Middle East. One of the brothers in this church actually brought uh, brought brought to my attention a video series that you can look up on YouTube. It's called Troweling Down, very interesting series on the discovery or the rediscovery of Sodom and and those five cities. So uh, if you're interested, uh, look them up. But the whole point of that is interesting. It was expected that people knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have a society that doesn't know about it anymore. You, I wonder how many people, if you'd pull them on the streets, do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? They wouldn't have a clue. And that's a sad reality because God sets up Sodom and Gomorrah for a purpose. We'll get to that in a second. But notice it says it, he condemned them with an overthrow. Remember how in, with the angels, the word delivered and reserved were legal terms. Here also the same word idea is condemned is a legal term term. See, the whole point of this is transgressing a law and God judging because laws are transgressed. And then it says, making them an example unto those that should after live ungodly. God planned the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, not just to be a historical curiosity that you can look up or dig up or talk about. He actually determined that Sodom and Gomorrah would be a preview, a type, a shadow of a greater judgment. And that is why history should be aware of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the word, when it says here in the text, um, he make, making them an example, the word making, again, is in this abiding tense, this idea of a monument, something that stands in history to make this point. How many times in the Bible do you think Sodom and Gomorrah gets used later as a reminder of what came and what is coming? Over 20 times in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah either become an example of abject wickedness and the destruction that will follow it. They are markers of a divine appointment. Have you ever gone to a doctor's office and you make an appointment for next time and the secretary gives you what? One of those little cards, right? With an appointment card with a date and a time. And it's for Dr. Such-and-so, you'll see. 
and you take that home, you put it in your pocket, you maybe pin it on your, your cork board, because you know on that day, on that time, you have an appointment. So it is with God. We have an appointment with God. It is dated, it is timed. We don't have the card with all the details. We have the scripture with enough detail. In fact, in Acts 17, remember Paul's at Areopagus in the highfalutin center of academia in Athens. And what does Paul say there? He says to these scholars of the day, he says, God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. The card was laid in front of them. Sodom and Gomorrah are a monument of that card's existence. We've got to come to grips with that. That brings us to our last point. God's just judgment, and it will be definitely our most thorough point here. Talks, I want to go back here to Noah when it talked about saving Noah, the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness. Some versions here right away say, uh, one of the eight. As literally, the Greek just says here, the eighth, which implies seven others. Peter also talks about the eight in First Peter 3 when he talks about the flood. Eight souls. And the whole idea here is, in a vastly populated world, it was only eight. It was only eight. That's why they bring that up. What a reminder of the grace of God to Noah and his family, in vastly outnumbered multitudes of sinners, God will preserve his own people. Sometimes when we're seeing society falling apart, we can think, well, how, how the number of Christians in our society is dwindling, right? You, this morning, someone is at my door. Can I hunt your fields? And I was thinking he needs to be in church, not hunting the fields. And it's just an example. Our society does not know God anymore. And, and it makes us wonder, how will God have Christianity to survive in this dwindling society? Who will preserve Christians? Remember Noah. God did, God does, and God will. He preserves his people, his name. His elect will hear his voice. And so Peter, in all of this, has shattered any notion of no judgment, but he's also shattered the notion of no salvation. Remember the false teacher said, if it's judgment, it's going to fall on everybody. Well, he picks up Noah and then Lot to show, no, 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 God brings cataclysmic judgment, but he will protect his own. So the false teachers are wrong on both accounts. Noah is called the preacher of righteousness. Jubilees, the book of Jubilees, again, an extra-biblical book, says this, because this, these, the knowledge of these things was thick in that culture. It says this, And he bore witness to his sons, so that they might do justice and cover the shame of their flesh, and bless the one who created them, and honor father and mother, and each one love his, um, each other, and preserve themselves from fornication and pollution and from all injustice." Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He told his kids, he told society the ways of God, what was right. And he is proclaiming it. He was a countercultural voice against the evils of society. Noah is an example of courage and boldness. He's an example of what we need to be in our culture that is falling apart. Our culture that has no clue why there are churches 
and they just wonder, are these just monuments of history? People are religious, but who really cares? As a culture is spiraling downward, speak up. Be a voice of courage. Be a voice of boldness. Can you imagine knowing what Noah knew? We actually know far worse than what Noah knew, don't we? When's the last time you've warned your friends, your family members, your coworkers about wrath to come, judgment day? On top of that, Noah builds an ark, sets up a monument and a place of refuge, a place of deliverance, visibly being a witness. And so the church must build the spiritual household of God visibly. Let's not hide in cloisters. Let's be out there. Let's be confident. Let's tell people and be a faithful witness, both in proclaiming the gospel and in faithfully living according to the gospel. Was Noah sinless? No, we know he wasn't. He's upright. He wasn't perfectly righteous in himself, was he? The book of Hebrews tells us that Noah was an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. And so he would have proclaimed that. He wouldn't have just said, smarten up your lives. It's all good. He would have pointed them to God. God of refuge. The God of mercy. That's the preaching of righteousness. To speak against the ills of society. But to point to the God of refuge. The God of strength. But uh, leaving... Noah behind. We get to kind of the shocker guy, Lot. And I don't know how you think about this, but just Lot, righteous Lot, his righteous soul. You know Lot, remember the story? He chose to live in Sodom. He married his daughters to unbelieving sons-in-laws. Law. He offered his daughters, when the angels were there, to the men of Sodom, who would do that? He lingered to leave. When the angel said, go, it says in the text, he lingered. He had an apostate wife. And then after they had fled, the most unseemly thing happens between him and his daughters. And yet the Bible says, that righteous man. You ever puzzled about that? Why? Why? What made him righteous? Well, the early church is actually unanimous in calling him righteous. Here's an example from Clement, 1st Clement. It says this, For his hospitality and piety, Lot was saved out of Sodom when the whole countryside was judged by fire and brimstone, 1st Clement 1.11. We also have to remember Abraham. Remember he prayed down to 10 righteous souls that God would spare the city. And God didn't spare the cities. There was the city. There wasn't even 10. But he did spare Lot. So God, the judge of all the earth, deemed him righteous. I think the clue, actually, to Lot's righteousness is found within this text when he describes it further. Notice it says he vexed He was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. It's setting righteous lot over against what the wicked were doing. The word for wicked means those who throw off any shackles of the law, who want nothing to do with restraint, and they just gratify themselves. They just indulge. No law. Lawless people. 
And it's exactly what we're seeing in society, in workplace, in schools, in government. People are casting off God's law. And sadly, in some churches as well, it's sad to see. But there's a scorning of God's law taking place in society. Our days are nighing the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it says in the text that Lot Lot was vexed. The word there means worn down, beaten down, pushed out further and further and further. And yet this righteous man stood. He didn't buckle under the pressure. It's a righteous thing. It's the emblem of righteousness that under the pressure, he didn't buckle. Because public sins in society can wear down on us, can't they? I think they're becoming more and more blatant. You just turn on your television or listen to the news. They're more aggressive about things right now. They're being legalized. And you're being penalized if you don't think like them. It could cost you friends. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your freedom in an increasingly hostile society. And what must the righteous do? Be bold as a lion. But Peter's not done exonerating and describing Lot and his situation here. Look at verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So zooming in, notice the word dwelling with them. He just says he's with them only in dwelling, but he's not part of them. It's like the idea that This is where we live. We live here in our communities in Alberta. But we know this isn't home. This isn't our final dwelling place. So we shouldn't get too comfortable in the same way as Lot was dwelling there with them, with the world. And so wherever Lot turned, both in seeing and in hearing, notice those words are very clear. They're basically saying he was surrounded with wickedness. That's what that means. He couldn't escape it. But the second time in our text when it says vexed, it's actually a different word in the Greek. Remember the first one was worn down, beaten down? That's what the first word for vexed means. The second one is a lot more graphic. It's the idea of metal that was used. It was a way of testing metal that they would rub metal against metal. Torture comes from it. And uh, you basically think of a grinder. I was thinking... That's what was happening. His soul was being ground by what he saw and what he was surrounded with. The righteous are appalled. They are tortured by what they see as a society crumbles and shakes its fists against God Almighty. It is a marker of the righteous people of God. Do we prefer to be inwardly sorrowing inwardly beat down and inwardly tortured over a wicked society rather than joining in with it. When you hear of abortion and you see videos or you hear about how doctors take this child alive in the womb which should be the safest place for a child And the poor child sees this instrument coming and flees to the highest part of the womb. And limb by limb this goes. And slowly a beating heart stops. Does that not cause incredible pain within when we hear about those stories? Or when we hear about children mutilating their bodies 
because grown-ups tell them it's okay to do that because certainly you feel differently about who you are, so now we're going to give you surgery to accommodate that. And doesn't that make your stomach turn when you hear that? And it should. The righteous' stomachs should turn when they see those things. Does it not pain us when we hear the stories of addictions, of drugs, of alcohol, or gambling? And you see what it does, the carnage it leaves behind to families. Does it not hurt you? Does it not shock you? Does it not pain you when you hear those stories? It should. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong within us. And it says, so Lot was hurt inside. It vexed him. It tortured him inwardly when he was surrounded with this kind of wickedness. His feelings were not numbed. His conscience was not seared from right and wrong by all this godlessness. How about us? We are bombarded with moral compromise. The book of Proverbs says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence in a falling, wayward society. Guard your heart. Peter doesn't just dwell on judgment. Notice very strongly the words of deliverance. He encourages the Christians, even then in Peter's days. Because to know that in spite of Noah's family being just few in number, in spite of Lot being worn down and tortured to his stomach, sick to his stomach by what took place, it says, God saved Noah. The word there, saved for Noah, is peculiar to his situation. It's the idea of a military guard around Noah in a world falling apart. God guarded him, how? In the ark of preservation. And it says he delivered just Lot. The word there is peculiar to his situation. It's a rescue mission. And God rescued him out of this wicked Sodom. So who is central to this passage? The teachers? No. The Christians? The righteous? No. God is central. God's judgment. God's deliverance. God gets all the praise. Always. And so verse 9 brings us to kind of the summary, the then side of this whole thing. The Lord knows how to deliver. Remember that. Remember that as we see a difficult world. Remember, God is not surprised. God is not out of ideas here. He's not wringing his hands saying, oh man, I, I did it in Noah's day. I did it in Sodom's day. But things are tougher now. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about uh, World War II and the horrors of World War II. Can you imagine living through what these people went through and the amount of um, backstabbing, the amount of espionage, the amount of torture, the concentration camps, the, the villages that were massacred as reprisal sometimes, living through that. And yet the Bible tells us God knows how to deliver the righteous. And we often think, oh, my situation is hopeless. Remember, the Lord knows how to. But it's been this way for years. The Lord knows how. But those against us are too strong. The Lord knows how to deliver. With infinite wisdom, with matchless power and with a great heart of love for his own God knows how to deliver you and me from our darkest hours of trial 
And that's what it says, how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Trials, temptations. It's interesting because the question that came up in commentaries rightfully is, perazzo, the Greek here, can be translated as trials, temptations. Which trials? What is he talking about? Is he talking about current trials or the future final judgment God knows how to deliver us from? Both. Because in the context, he's talking about Lot's circumstances, and he knew how to protect Lot and keep him righteous within the circumstance, but also the judgment. And so I think both are being talked about. God knows how to preserve us within the trials and beyond the trials to the final judgment. God knows how to protect us from everything. Do you think that power was ever supposed to come from us? Do you think we were supposed to look at ourselves and say, I've got this one? That's not the way the Bible works, is it? You and I do not have the strength. Our foe is much more powerful than we are. The barrages against the gates of our hearts are so intense that it says in the Bible, who are taken about the devil, those who he takes captive at his will. So don't get proud. Don't think you don't need God. The Bible's point here is we need him, and he preserves us. God delivers. It's the same word, the deliverance, as what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us. You think of the deliverance. It was God in his deliverance. He would commission Noah to build the ark. And Noah had to act. In faith, he had to act and build this massive monument that one day would have to float when it made no sense this thing would ever float. And yet God told him to build it. And by faith, he obeyed. It was countercultural for sure. And so we have to do the hard things that God calls us to, and He will preserve us. It's interesting. You think of the ark, perfectly designed, wasn't it? Perfectly buoyant. You ever see videos on creation.com about how God's design in the ark was amazing? I remember in Holland going to a replica of the ark. It's fascinating how big it is and how it could well satisfy all the needs of the animals and all these things. It was God's provision. It was God's covering. And then eventually this ark perfectly lands on Mount Ararat. Perfect landing. Isn't that amazing? God left it there as a marker. But also think of God's deliverance of Lot, right? In the last hours of the life of that region, he sends his messengers. And then as the men of the city are coming in on Lot, they close the door. They pull him in and close the door and then put a blindness on all these men of the city and then they kind of dissipate from there and then they have to run. And God protects them. And remember, he goes to Zoar for a little bit and then he goes from there into the caves again. But God's plans are always successful to his purposes. Now, uh, Lest we think deliverance here and now is it. Let's not kid ourselves. Deliverance doesn't mean we won't sin anymore now. It doesn't. We sin. We sin now. But what this deliverance does mean, dear believers, is it means this. By God's provision, 
The believer will not make shipwreck of his faith. Take confidence in that. We may not be spared intense suffering here, but we will be spared from eternal suffering. That's what it does mean. God does not promise escape now from our trials. Instead, the Apostle Paul, remember in the book of Acts, what does he say, he says, say to the early churches? He says that he can, exhorted them to continue in the faith and that we with much tribulation should enter into the kingdom of God. But enter the believer will. Enter they will. And it is because of that confidence that the Apostle Paul says, because I know this, And though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And he says, because of that, I don't faint. I don't lose heart. I press on, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and present us with you. That is deliverance. That is hope. You know, when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, to do it our way because it seems God's way is just not working out for us. All that means, it would be like Lot packing up his belongings and saying, oh, the fix to the Sodom problem is I'm going to move to Gomorrah. Taking matters into your own hands isn't the right way. The real rescue is from God alone. Oh, what grace that he doesn't leave us to our own solutions. He gives us the Bible so that we can see his ways, his righteousness. Oh, and we try to do that. Can you imagine God going to Noah and saying, I'm going to bring a flood upon the whole earth, build a boat, and he leaves. And Noah has to design this thing, engineer this thing. He's never seen waters of that kind of proportions before. No, no, God gives him the exact layout, the exact exact. Um, proportions that he needed to do and so in all our trials the deliverance God calls us to is to call us to his word and to trust him in the struggles you're facing this week trust him believe his design is the right one God is drawing us closer to his son our savior who died for us to him who is interceding for us to a Christ who has promised to come again and to receive us unto himself. Trust the one. If you're going through these trials this past week or next week, as we go through them, trust the one who orchestrates your path with perfect design, with pinpoint accuracy, with impeccable results, and with perfect fulfillment. I was thinking here, Navy SEALs, right? And and they practice and they practice and they practice and then they get a mission and they plan everything and all these contingencies and then still they can have failures because something unforeseen happened and they had to start shooting where they didn't think they had to shoot and they lost some of their own. Not so with God. He knows everything. He plans the end from the beginning. He knows it all. And so it will always be a successful mission with our great God. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation because he's not a Navy SEAL. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the all in all. And that leads us to the darker end of this section. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. You know, as the angels are waiting in Tartarus, 
So if you, any of you, any of us, any of our neighbors, our friends, stubbornly refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ and carry on in a wicked life, then to that individual, then to you, if you do that, is reserved wrath. Notice verse 10. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Peter has his sights set on these false teachers, particularly, peculiarly. He's specifically going after the heretics within the church, and he names their two corrupting, peculiar sins that they're infesting into the churches. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. You notice Peter never mentions the sin of homosexuality, of Sodom here. Jude alludes to some of it. We know it was happening, but instead they describe it in broad sweeps because there's so many more sins, particularly sexual sins, that can lay hold of a church, that can lay hold of believers, and that can lay hold of false teachers and get promulgated. And they are the flesh, uh, going after the flesh and the lusts of uncleanness, the cravings of the flesh in all kinds of ways. And it is common unfortunately common in Christianity to kind of have a loose whatever to brush off that dressing is whatever I want to do and and Christians are dressing promiscuously and it's wrong or using suggestive language and it's wrong to be obsessed with physical appearance and it's wrong and when no one is looking to grab this thing and to go to a website and to feast with your eyes upon an altar of wickedness that is indescribable. And everyone is silent when that happens. And churches are not holding one another accountable to these dark sins that Peter is alluding to precisely in this deck. Chiefly them that are doing this. One commentator says this, the heretics represent an archetypal example of the human plight from which faith in Christ alone offers deliverance. Some people in churches are so enslaved to sexual sin and they've tried all kinds of software to protect themselves and distance and this and that. The only salvation is Jesus Christ, making him sweeter, loving him more, seeing more of Christ that the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You will never be delivered from your captivity outside of Jesus Lastly, he says they despise government. Notice the singular. It doesn't say governments. It could have. The governments would have been angels, most likely. No, it says government because they despise, they contemn, they hate that one government, that one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't stand him barking orders how they feel it, demanding how they live. They don't like that. They despise it. 
But don't get all proud and say, oh, that doesn't happen to me. I, I have no problem with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We can spurn it, can't we? Oh, we can. We can so easily. Does Jesus Christ have claim on your work? Does he have claim on how you bring about your household? Does Jesus Christ have claim on your leisure time? Does he have claim on your time at all? Does he have claim on your wardrobe, on your car? Does he demand the rights to your family, your house? Are there aspects in your life that we choose to insulate from him? Are we like the rich young ruler? Remember that? It's interesting. He was rich. He was young. And what else was he? We missed this. He was a ruler. And where is he? He's in the regions of Judea. What's Judea? The region compared to Galilee. Filthy, stinking rich. And they were exploiting. So most likely this man inherited some sort of a lands and houses. And he was a ruler. And it was all about exploits. And that's why Jesus puts his finger right on what he did not want to yield to Jesus Christ. They say that the temple treasuries had about 1.1 billion contemporary dollars worth of money banked in it from exploitation. Incredible. How great is our brokenness, isn't it? But oh, walk away this morning knowing the constancy of God, the faithfulness of God, how God is faithful to his word, to himself. He never breaks his word. Think about the two poles of that constancy. To the unrepentant, the gavel has come down, guilty and damned. But to those of us who repent and trust in Jesus Christ, that gavel has come down as well. And Christ's righteousness is accounted to us. And our sins are accounted to his death. And we are free in Jesus Christ. The judgment will not fall on us. You know, it's interesting. We have two judgments, really, right? We have water and fire, flood and brimstone. The judgment waters are pictured in baptism. They cleansed the old to bring in the new world, right? The old world to the new world. But the other one, the judgments of fire, they consumed everything and they left a ruin. No new world in Sodom. The one brought life out of the carnage the other one, ashes. And the Bible picks up on that. And so I leave you with one question this morning. Have you passed through the cleansing waters of baptism through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your majestic word. We thank you for the hope that it puts before us. We thank you that you deliver sinners who trust in you. Lord, our righteousness is a foreign righteousness. It is not us, but it is Christ in us. Lord, how great you are. Truly, the Lord is our salvation. You are our Lord. May we live accordingly. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's outside of you. Would you save them from that final wrath? In Jesus' name, amen.